and welcome to the Our Wisdom podcast. I'm Geeta Sundaram from Goa, India, and I'm here to talk to you about all things business, politics, and culture. Thank you for joining me. This is a COVID-19 special edition of the Our Wisdom podcast, where we're discussing the world after COVID. As the world is convulsed with the worst pandemic in decades, I invite you to spend a few moments imagining its long-term effects with me. For the first time in many decades, has a virus spread through so many countries with such speed and virulence, it has left us helpless because it has robbed us of the most human need to meet and interact with each other. It has shut us indoors, not allowing us to breathe fresh air because, well, it is airborne. When people do stir out, they are so afraid of meeting another face that they hide behind masks, something even the worst air pollution hasn't managed to do. On the other hand, one can't help admiring the valiant efforts of the first responders, the medics, the essential services staff, the law enforcement agencies and others, as they go about their daily work knowing full well that they are first in the line of attack. In India, many do so without even basic protective gear, unlike in other countries. How long COVID-19 will be with us is anybody's guess. But the longer it stays, the more it will affect our lives, perhaps in profound and far-reaching ways. One immediate impact that we are already experiencing is working from home, for those of us who can. Technology enables this, and since this century is going to be governed by technology, we can safely say that working from home is likely to become de rigueur in the post-COVID world as well. The Economist says that besides reducing congestion, our carbon footprint and other externalities, the cost of real estate is likely to make many companies decide in favour of working from home as a more permanent arrangement. I think that is unlikely and certainly not across all industries and sectors and across all levels of workers. For one thing, automation and AI are already creating two classes of workers. A managerial class engaged in mostly non-routine tasks and a worker class performing routine but necessary tasks. While there is every chance that the latter will be replaced by automation, it is middle-level jobs that seem to be disappearing at a faster rate, according to several studies. Why? Because they have been playing the enabler, efficiency multiplier roles at the office that technology has increasingly taken over. The future of work is another apocalyptic scenario that awaits us and for which the world is very ill-prepared. That said, in such a scenario, would companies want the few star managers and leaders in their organizations to stay home behind a computer screen and not to lead change, spearhead new ideas, spread their infectious enthusiasm, groom their successors, hone their work culture and keep the spirit of the organization going? I think not. After all, an organization is only its people and their skills and ideas. On the other hand, I anticipate flexi-working becoming more important, with greater focus on effectiveness and target management, rather than hours spent in office. 
With the lines between work and leisure already being blurred through technology, flexi-working will become the great new perquisite of the privileged elite, that they choose to work from anywhere and in any way they prefer, as long as they achieve their goals. I would also like to discuss other not-so-obvious ways in which COVID-19 might change our lives. And that's right after this break. You're listening to a COVID-19 special edition of the Our Wisdom podcast. Next, we'll look at the other effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, including healthcare. Welcome back. Let us now look at some of the other long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm of the view that in changing our behavior in fundamental ways, COVID-19 is in a sense asking us to re-evaluate our lives, value systems and lifestyles. The longer it lasts in certain countries and the more devastating it is for those societies, the impact of the pandemic will also pan out in unexpected ways. Yuval Noah Harari, in a recent article in Financial Times, explored a few possibilities of the post-COVID-19 world. As if the world finds itself at crossroads, Harari says, we will be confronted by some of the most difficult choices between a surveillance society and citizen empowerment on the one hand and between rising nationalism and globalism on the other. In dealing with the COVID-19 crisis itself, he says the biggest factor is trust. Quote, but to achieve this level of compliance and cooperation, you need trust. People need to trust science, trust public authorities, and to trust the media. Over the past few years, irresponsible politicians have undermined the trust in science, in public authorities, and in media. Now, these same irresponsible politicians might be tempted to take the high road to authoritarianism, arguing that you just cannot trust the public to do the right thing." Unquote. If we look back at any of the calamitous events in modern world history, we're likely to see that they were almost always followed by some kind of reset. The outbreaks of plague in Europe in the 14th and 17th centuries were followed by huge demographic changes that led to higher wages, greater urbanization, and the later plague epidemic in particular is believed to have set the economic growth trajectories of Northern and Southern Europe along divergent paths. Similarly, the two world wars were so devastating to all participating countries that they came together under the Marshall Plan to rebuild their future in ways that required cooperation rather than conflict between them. This culminated in a new rules-based world order and greater multilateralism between nations. 
We don't see it now, but we might perhaps be at just such a tipping point with the COVID-19 crisis. The first and most direct connection with the pandemic is the state of healthcare systems around the world. From news reports, we can already tell the inability of even the most advanced economy, America, to cope with the COVID crisis. It is so much worse in other poorer countries. If nothing else, the COVID crisis forces us to ask an important question. How should we respond to a virus that doesn't discriminate between rich and poor? Through publicly provided health care or privatized medical attention, which the poor can ill afford. In my country, India, where we have both types coexisting, it is a golden opportunity to scale up and build capacity in both. Thankfully, we're also one of the world's largest producers of generic drugs, which help to keep healthcare costs low. What we need to do now is encourage the development of indigenous APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients. Also, should the COVID-19 vaccine, when developed and tested, be the prized asset of one big pharma company, or should it be accessible to all? This should lead us to the next logical step. Isn't this the best time to reform international big pharma? There is a third angle to healthcare, and that is the growing role of technology. As medicine and healthcare become increasingly personalized through technology, we need to proceed very cautiously about the same data privacy issues that plague, sorry for the terrible pun, other areas of our lives as well. Hopefully, policymakers around the world will pay careful and immediate attention to these issues. Time for another breather now. When we return, we shall look at other long-lasting impacts of COVID-19, including climate change. You're listening to the COVID-19 special edition of the Owl Wisdom podcast. Coming up, the environmental effects of COVID-19 and the long-term global response to pandemics. Welcome back. As I said earlier, COVID-19 is asking us to seriously re-evaluate our life choices. In an existential way then, it is asking man to be responsible for his decisions. Because this coronavirus is believed to have originated in the animal world before transmission to humans, COVID-19 is a matter of environmental concern as well. We are still awaiting the results of the final studies being done on the virus, but it is cause for concern. Anyway, it has long been advocated that people switch to low-meat diets both for health and environment-related reasons. The toll that the meat industry is taking on land use, crop cultivation, use of water and forest resources all make it a highly natural resource-intensive and wasteful industry, one that the world cannot afford to continue to encourage. Besides, it is now well established that excess meat, particularly red meat, in our diets is harmful to our health in the long run. 
It is here that policymakers will have to take tough decisions because the packaged meat industry as well as animal feed are big businesses for countries that trade in them. And the meat of exotic animals that are popular in some countries such as China operate without proper hygiene and safety regulations. Of course, there is no conclusive proof yet that this coronavirus originated in an exotic or commonplace animal, but why take the chance, especially when it involves the health of millions of people around the world? COVID-19 will hopefully force us to rethink our diets and our lifestyles. And finally, the global response that is required to fight a global pandemic. Time for an international pandemic fighting force. Bill Gates, in a prescient and thoughtful TED Talk in 2015, warned of the next global pandemic and said that the world wasn't ready for it. As someone who leads a global philanthropic health initiative with his wife Melinda, he should know what it would require to fight disease on this scale. He talked of preparing a global front that is specially trained and equipped to fight pandemics. I think that time has come. UN and WHO should spearhead a global initiative to prepare a UN pandemic fighting force to which countries contribute just the way they do the UN peacekeeping force. Creating and training such a force should begin right away with countries pledging their commitments. Right now the global economy is looking down the barrel of a deep recession and recovery could take a while in my view. COVID-19 has disrupted global supply chains, locked down entire countries, thrown millions out of their jobs already. Thankfully, China is back in business and that can only be good news. But who knows how this will end? And when it does, will we be back to shaking hands with each other again? Will we look back on social distancing as a strange, even quaint cultural phenomenon reminiscent of the Victorian era that actually started off the 2020s? History can often be a useful guide on pitfalls to avoid. So can literature. In his book, Literature and Western Man, J.B. Priestley writes of two authors, Daniel Defoe and Jonathan Swift, who despaired and warned of the bloated pride and hubris that would lead their country, Britain, to doom. According to him, the books Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels are allegorical tales written in the aftermath of the plague that attempt to ask man to scale down his ambition and greed and to cut power and glory down to size. The world needs to get ready for the big reset. Thanks so much for joining me in imagining a post-COVID world. See you again next month with yet another edition of the Owl Wisdom Podcast. Stay safe and healthy wherever you might be. For all undergoing treatment, best wishes for a speedy recovery. And to the first responders, can't thank you enough. For more Owl Wisdom, read my blog peripateticperch.com and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter.